Hi, this is Chris Foreman from Madness, and you're listening to the Stateside Madness podcast. Hi there, folks, out there. I'd like you to meet Tommy McGuire and his comrade. Hello, and welcome to the Stateside Madness podcast, the one and only podcast of the official Madness American fan service. I'm Lori, along with my co-host Polly, here to bring you news, reviews, and deep dives into the nutty sound of the British pop band Madness. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Stateside Madness podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Polly. How are you, Polly? Uh, things are good. It's a, it's a lovely day here and um, a heavy, heavy week for, for Madness fans. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit in the community oh, yeah. here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Let's, let's just jump right in. Let's, uh, let's start with the communicator. Okay. Well, so the big news, at least from our standpoint, from Stateside Madness, is that we have hit 3,333 downloads. Ooh, ominous. Uh, ominous? Is that, is that a bad thing? I don't oh, know. I don't know. It depends. If you're into numerology, it must mean something. Yeah, but no, I mean, I'm like, oh, that's such a neat number, 3333. But if you think about it, though, that's a third of the way to 10,000. Uh, there you go. Yeah. So um, our previous episode, episode 19, Ian Dury, we got some really, really positive feedback. Thank you to everybody who messaged or uh, emailed. Um, I, I had a number of people who said, you know, hey, I've been a, a fan of Ian Dury for years and I learned something new. So uh, I, I think it was a really, really good episode. I'm glad we did it. A little bit of a detour from our normal repertoire. Yeah, uh, I heard from a couple of people who really, really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for that and for the messages. Um, yeah, it was really, really fun to do. Yeah, it was kind of cool. So, uh, you know, maybe we'll do some more episodes in the future of uh artists that have been influential on madness maybe i i think we should cool all right and then also we have a new article on statesidemadness.com uh donald our madness maven and our webmaster he's uh written an article called a tale of two u.s cities so uh he was able to get a preview of the third episode of before we was we which again is not available here in the United States yet. And we don't know when it's going to be, but uh, you know, we have some connections with the band. And so they, they shared with Stateside Madness, some of the videos. And so Donald talks a little bit about that and specifically about what the band has said about their first experiences in America. Did you get a chance to read that article, Polly? Uh, yeah, I read the article. Um, I have yet to actually, um watch the the clips 
but I'm um, looking forward to doing that. And yeah, like many folks and an awful lot of talk on our Facebook group um, about when are we going to be able to see it. And unfortunately, we can't say with any certainty, um, but uh, you know, check the Facebook group. I did put a post on there or reacted to a post saying about as close as when we think we might see it, which the rumor mill has that at September, but who knows? No promises from stateside madness. Yeah. That's my guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I bet at some point they're going to release it on DVD because there's a huge market for collectors for this kind of stuff. I bet you we're going to see it on DVD before we see it uh, broadcast here. But again, I'm I, speculating. I'm not basing. I have no no source with the band or anything that. No, I'd, I'd buy it on DVD. Do you have an all region DVD player, Polly? I'm working on that. I own so many Madness uh, DVDs that I have to watch on my laptop that, top that it's getting kind of old. So, yeah. Well, I, I, we were laughing over here and we, we kind of had a conversation going on in the Facebook group about this. So um, uh, we upgraded last year to uh, Blu-ray. Finally, I, I'm way behind the technology curve there. But um, I had asked my father for my birthday. He said, what do you want? I said, well, how about an all region DVD Blu-ray player? You know, because I have a lot of madness discs, uh, DVDs that are, you know, region encoded. Um, I also have uh, Duran Duran, In Excess, a few other videos that are, are not, not in the U.S. format. And my dad is like, hmm, what kind of movies are you watching there that you need the, the all region player? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, my dad thinks we're watching Swedish porn or something. <laughs> So that was an awkward discussion. Yeah, I don't, that, that's, yeah, that's what you want to talk with your dad about. I, I, you know, I don't think he believed me when I said that it was for music videos. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> what did you watch on TV last night? I was going to say, speaking of music videos. And so last night was the global live stream of The Get Up. And uh, so, yeah, that's what I watched last night. Did you get a chance to watch it, Polly? In fact, I did. Um, I took a took a nap so I could stay up late and, and watch TV. And uh, yeah, I was I was very happy for it. Did not mind coughing up the money to uh, to be able to watch it. I'd do it again gladly. And I'd love to see more of it. But yeah, it was really really well done. It I, I was pleasantly surprised. I really I didn't think it was going to be as good as it was. You know, we had some special guest appearances by Roland Gift and Paul Weller, which was kind of cool. But yeah, the whole format, you know, it was it was nostalgic, but not in a sappy kind of way. You know, it was it was it was clever. I thought it, it, I, I enjoyed watching it. Yeah, there was there was a lot for me to like. Um, always love Paul Weller, and um, uh, already comment of well a lot of, of folks on stateside madness have already been commenting about it um but paul weller got brought up a lot and he definitely he always brings it he's just fantastic and um yeah there's there's very little i wouldn't watch him sing and roland gift's performance was was great as well um it's so good he's such a talented singer and of course he's known for his vocal delivery on You Drive Me Crazy, which is, I guess, signature of his, but not representative of everything he can do. 
So it was good to see him take a little bit of a break from that. And uh, his performance was fantastic. And being a proud Mainer, it did not hurt my feelings at all to see uh, Stephen King really represented in the broadcast. So I, I, there was a lot for me to love about it. How, how was Stephen King represented? I missed that. So the whole shtick um, was that it was like The Shining. See, so I, I, I guess I didn't catch that. Maybe because there wasn't like, you know, murder and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, aside from the band killing it. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I guess that part of Tomo kind of wandering around in circles the way he was, I guess that that's very Stephen King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the okay. London Palladium takes place of the Overlook Hotel. See, now I didn't even catch that. Wow. Wow. And uh, finally, and the news just came out, and it's on Madison's Facebook page. Um, so they're doing another tour, uh, the Lady Killers tour. It's going to be in Ireland and the UK. It's going to be in uh, starting very late November and run through most of December. Uh, starts just after the House of Fun weekender. And um, nice little short tour around the UK, mostly. Uh, it's uh, kind of a tradition in the UK to do Christmas tours. A lot of bands do it. Did you see who's opening on this Lady Killers tour? They're very fragrant special guests, as they put it. Uh, Squeeze. I love Squeeze. I saw them live a few years ago. It was amazing. Yeah, um, I would absolutely love to see Squeeze. It just has not happened um, no? for me yet. You never know. What time is it? Showtime. Okay, so moving on to our topic of the week. So there's been a little bit of a change. Initially, we were going to do the Universal Madness CD. And because of that was the next American release in the sequence. A week and a half ago as I was starting to put together the episode. And, you know, I apologize. I should have listened to you. You know, you're like, oh, I don't know if we should do an episode on this. We've done these this, these songs so many times already. And I said, no, let's do it. Let's do it. You know, this American release, it's the first live album they released in America. And you were right. <laughs> As I'm starting to put together this episode, I'm like, our listeners are going to be bored because we just keep saying this over and over. So um, so I emailed you with a little bit of a course correction and, and um so we decided we're going to talk about the Danger Men sessions. And uh, yeah, not a moment too soon. I absolutely love this record. And uh, it came right at a time when I was, uh, wouldn't say reintroducing myself uh, to Madness, but when Madness was more or less kind of really starting to get right back into it, I think. I, I'm actually really kind of happy about this because the previous episode, the Ian Drury episode, I ended up having to, you know, do a lot of the research for it and a lot of the heavy lifting because you had 
things that were going on. And now, you know, again, because I'm a, a professor and this is our finals, I haven't had time to do any research on this episode. So now you are kind of picking up the slack for me this episode. And I know that this is in your wheelhouse and your area of expertise. So I am so, so grateful, Polly, that uh, you have your notebook there. I've got like eight, eight pages of notes in, Holy. In, in my too hot, dangerously cute Bratz notebook. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, that, that's going into the podcast, <laughs> but yes, I, so, so the notebook that he just showed me, you guys is, uh, it is a Bratz notebook. I can confirm the, the teen girl line of dolls with, uh, <laughs> with your eight pages of notes. So, um, so thank you for that. Hey, so not a, not a problem. Yeah, well, we'll talk about it um, song by song, but it's a bit yeah. of a uh, uh, smorgasbord of uh, musical inspiration. And then I suppose all um, sifted through the filter of the sort of ska sound. But we'll, yeah. get on, we'll get on to that in a minute when we talk about the tracks. Yeah. So uh, Lori, why don't you tell me about a little bit about where they might've been in their career yeah, yeah. So to, to bring our listeners up to speed, where we last left it um, was Madstock, 1992, right? That was the big reunion. We did a, an episode about Madstock two episodes ago, right? Episode 18, I think it was. So the, this reunion, it went great. You know, the uh, Madness are back on people's radars. And they continued to play a few one-off shows here and there. They did, as we mentioned previously, they did a Madstock 94, 96, and 98. Um, that last Madstock 98, it is available on a DVD. And of course, uh, speaking of all region DVDs, it, it's, uh, you know, whatever the UK region code is. So if you do decide to order some of these discs, make sure you have an all region DVD player. In capitalizing on the the renewed popularity of the band there were a few compilation albums released actually it's it, i'm going through it's like compilation 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 but the significant one i want to mention is the usa only release total madness which was 1997 and um, that's significant to me because that's the first madness album i ever bought and that was the uh the one that really kind of ignited my passion for the band i mean i had known our house, I had known uh, House of Fun and One Step Beyond. And those are the only three songs I knew by Madness. And listening to this, this CD, and it's just like, oh my gosh, wow. I mean, you know, I'm thinking these guys are, you know, like one hit wonders and so much good stuff. So um, that compilation was significant to me. Madness did play a number of American tour dates in spring 1998, which I wasn't aware of, but they were all on the West Coast. I mean, almost entirely in California. I think there was one date maybe that was not in California, but that was their first uh, American tour since 1984. And the April 26, 1998 show at the Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles was recorded and released as the live album, Universal Madness. So that was released in March of 1999. 
So I've explained already why we decided we're not going to do a deep dive on this album, but it is a really great album. It really captures the band's energy at this time in their careers. And I really recommend it. Uh, it was, again, an American release, uh, Universal Madness. I definitely think our listeners should check it out. By 1999, they'd written enough new material to release a new studio album, which is wonderful. That's the name of the album. It was a wonderful album, but it was named Wonderful. And that came out in 1999, but it was not released in the USA. And although it's a really sensational album, I think the sales were a little bit disappointing. Enter the Danger Men. This is where the danger ends. 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 This is This is where the danger ends. This is where the danger ends. And out in the world, an invitation appears to people. You are cordially invited to witness the debut performance of London's hottest new ska combo, The Danger Man, who will be appearing at the Dublin Castle from the 19th to the 22nd of May. So right there, the mention of Dublin Castle should include a few people in. Um, and the idea was that to celebrate the band's 25th anniversary, uh, they kind of wanted to go back a little bit to their roots. So they were trying to be a little bit nebulous. They were trying to be a bit cagey. And yeah, sort of reintroducing themselves. I think the idea was fantastic, personally. And that would have been also kind of like the first time they had made it back to the Dublin Castle since uh, the filming of Take It or Leave It, which would have put that about 1981. So yeah, it's them paying homage to uh, the place that made them them. And uh, yeah, getting back a little bit to their roots. Who exactly are the Danger Men? Well, the band was named after a 1960s TV series called Danger Man, starring Patrick McGowan. A little bit before my time. I don't, I don't know that show, do you? Uh, I, I didn't see Danger Man a great deal, but I do believe Patrick McGowan was um, the lead on The Prisoner which was a great show. Okay. Um, and The Prisoner. Um, I remember uh, that one. You do remember that? Yeah. Yeah, he I'm not a number. I'm a free man. Right. And of course, yeah. uh, then famously um, inspiring um, the Iron Maiden song, uh, The Prisoner, which used that quote in it. So what we had here was basically the members of Madness gone, quote unquote, undercover with secret identities and secret aliases and playing old Jamaican reggae and ska and, and 
uh, the kind of songs that they used to play back when they were the North London Invaders before they had made it big. So all seven band members had secret identities. And uh, if you look at the album cover for the Dangerman Sessions Volume 1, you'll, you'll see the information on these secret identities. We had Lester Burnham who was allegedly born at sea and washed up on the shores of Cuba with a bass guitar made of driftwood. That would obviously be betters. Jimmy Ooh, O-O-O-H, Jimmy Ooh, an itinerant singer, that's Carl. Daniel Descartes, experimental percussionist born in Paris and leader of the touring band, the Daniel Descartes Collective, that's Woody. Professor Psychoticus, a Hungarian-born musician who worked in sonic weapons research in the USSR before being introduced to the music of the Daniel Descartes Collective, which led to the formation of the Dangerman. That's Mike Barson. Then we have Robert Chaos, the poet, found in a Gladstone bag at the feet of Miles Davis by Dexter Gordon and a founding member of the Dangerman. That's Suggs. Christophos Formantos, um, of whom nothing is known. Hmm, it's a mystery. And then of course we have the unnamed atmospheric scientist and part-time sax player, that would be Lee Thompson. 2004, right? That's when we started to see the, these secret invitations for these shows showing up, these Dublin Castle shows. And in the fall of 2004, Man has had a new record label. So they were signed to Richard Branson's V2, which was a Virgin 2. And V2 looked at the lack of sales for Wonderful. And then they thought that that meant that audiences were no longer interested in Madness's original material. So uh, the label liked the idea, however, of the band doing an album of cover songs. And so the Dangerman Sessions was born. Now, Clive Langer, their producer, was not keen on the idea of them doing a covers album. So they brought in a producer named Dennis Bovel. Bovell. He's a Barbados-born producer who started off in the reggae band Matumbi. I am a little bit familiar with Matumbi, but they were actually, by merit of being uh, a band from Barbados, I don't think they were really under the umbrella of any of the like original reggae acts weren't. Um, Trojan or Island or anything like that. So, you know, I didn't really dabble too much in them, but I've heard of them. Well, uh, Dennis had also worked previously with a number of uh, famous bands, Dexy's Midnight Runners, Bananarama, Thompson Twins. So he was not unknown in the British music scene. And then they brought in Steve Dub Jones and John Seggs Jennings to produce a number of the tracks. Because supposedly they weren't really happy with the, uh, the recordings that, that Dennis had done. So then they brought in these other producers. The record label was nervous about the album being released under a name other than Madness. You know, they thought, okay, if we put out this album and we call it The Danger Men, people aren't going to know who it is. So they settled on the wording, Madness presents The Danger Men. So that way it would be clear to the public what it was that they were getting. The album cover for the Dangerman Sessions Volume 1 presented all seven band members in silhouette. Uh, Woody said in an interview that he wanted people to think of a gang. 
That's why they presented all seven band members in silhouette like that. And initially when this album came out, the sales seemed to be better than Wonderful, but then they very quickly stalled. Um, it was released in the USA, unlike Wonderful. So uh, the reviews of this album were lukewarm and critics generally agreed that the album failed to capture the energy of the Dangerman's live shows. Uh, regarding the critical acclaim or lack thereof for the album, um, I guess there's kind of two things uh, with that. Um, one is that critics often play by their own kind of rule book. Um, and there's one thing they can't abide by, and that is a band um, going backwards and doing anything remotely nostalgic, at least in terms of rock bands. If you're Bob Dylan and you want to go back and do something nostalgic and representative of your early area, uh, they'll all stand up and cheer. If you're a rock or a pop outfit and you go back and do something nostalgic, they will almost always universally condemn it. And um, it's, I think it plays a great deal to um, or what they think is gonna sell at that point, would have, what would have been magazines. Um, uh, you know, record reviews, generally speaking, are for music novices and not for established uh, fan bases. So they can fuck off as far as I'm concerned. I think it was a fantastic album. And they should have known it then. Now, Chris Foreman was actively involved with the band during the recording, but there had been some conflicts and he had left the band before the album was released. So he appears on the album, but by the time the album is released, Chris is out of the band. Yeah. All right. All right. So track one of the Danger Men Sessions volume one is called This Is Where. And we already heard that. That was that little 30 second sound montage of samples. Yeah, it's an interesting introduction. It definitely lets the listeners know, hey, here comes something different. You know, it's not, it's uh, certainly not as though they intended people to get up and dance to it. You know, it was just a thing, you know. So, yeah, good on them. Why not? All right. So, second song, Girl, Why Don't You? Uh, by Prince Buster. Girl, I think I love you. Right, so uh, like we said there, uh, Girl, Why Don't You uh, by Prince Buster. Um, it actually falls under a few different names, the original, well, what you might call the original version. Uh, there's a difference, I think, between the album and the single. 
but I think it's most commonly referred to girl and then sometimes not girl, uh, but most commonly referred to answer to your name. So curious, um, and I don't believe it actually appeared as girl, why don't you on um, any of the Prince Buster releases. So they kind of adapted that title to the song, I think. Um, but what can I say? Uh, I, I love the song. What do you, what's your thoughts on that? Oh yeah, this is, this is a good song. It's fun to listen to. It's, it's, uh, I was listening to it again last night. It's, uh, yeah, it's a fun one. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, you know, and off a really, really important album by Prince Buster. Uh, it came out in 1967 off of What a Hard Man for Dead, um, for Dead. And uh, yeah, it's the album that I wouldn't call it really Prince Buster's breakthrough because his, his first uh, two preceding that were also pretty popular. But uh, it does uh, appear on the album with Ten Commandments and Shantytown, which um, by now are uh, like bedrock classics for ska. So yeah, I mean, fantastic song, great selection. And it really plays the Madness's strengths. Absolutely. Okay, let's listen to track three, Shame and Scandal. So that was Shame and Scandal. It was originally performed by Sir Lancelot uh, as a song called Scandal in the Family. And it's from the original from way back in 43. Madness did release this song as a single off of the album, but it didn't do so well, except in France, where it peaked at number 12 and spent 19 weeks in the charts. Polly, what can you tell me about Shame and Scandal? Yeah, well, it's also um, the only um, uh, song off the album that had a real proper video, I guess is the way I would say it. Um, and it was uh, breaking out of uh, the madness um, stereotype of as far as videos go. It was very um, sexy, sexy time for madness, dirty dancing style video. And the boys are uh, hamming it up a little, but not so much in the sort of nutty boys role where they were doing, you know, costumes and uh, running around like lunatics, Benny Hill style, that whole shtick. So uh, yeah, it was, I think, signaling a little bit of a departure in what Madness might do visually 
but then kind of getting back to a little bit of what they've always done. You mentioned the video, and I don't know why I never made the connection before. 2004, the movie Dirty Dancing Havana Nights came out that year. So I wonder if, if they're capitalizing on that, or I, I mean, I'm not sure, but it seemed like that was kind of the in thing in 2004. Um, but the song itself is really pretty interesting. Like you mentioned, it came out in 1943. It was um, featured in uh, the movie, well, written specifically for the movie, I Walk with a Zombie. And um, it was featured as Scandal and Shame, or sometimes Shame and Sorrow. So another song that had a couple of different um titles to it for some reason about that time but um sir lancelot his name is actually lancelot victor edward pinard but uh, he was from trinidad and his father apparently was quite um an anglophile hence the like all time uh, most english uh aside from lancelot really being french but the most english of names um which i thought was uh kind of neat yeah, so he was originally a Calypso performer um, and dabbled in German and um, I believe French classical music before deciding on Calypso, which is kind of a roundabout way having been born in Trinidad. Yeah, he moved to, moves to New York and decides to become a Calypso performer and was really quite successful at that. And uh, quite a few different versions where people... Uh, mess about with the words, uh, don't really change the melody so much, but can uh, change context a little bit and um, kind of adapt it and develop their, it as their own as a lot of folk music has done. I would argue that Madness probably didn't really cover the Sir Lancelot version so much. Um, there's an artist out there, uh, Sean Elliott, who is kind of like the Pat Boone of uh, you know, Calypso style music white guy who comes in and does a real milk toast kind of watered down version of stuff. But that definitely has all the hallmarks of the song version that Madness does. But coincidentally, Peter Tosh did a version that is probably also the most like uh, the Madness song. And we've seen in previous episodes that Madness really uh, were influenced by Peter Tosh. So that makes sense. Let's talk about the song itself. Um, the lyrics crack me up. Um, you know, you mentioned that Sir Lancelot, the original author, was from Trinidad, and that's how the song starts out, right? About this young man in Trinidad who's, well, you know, he's he's trying to find a wife. And the poor guy, every time, every girl that he brings home, his dad says, Well, no, you know, that you you can't marry her. The girl's your sister, but your mama don't know. And we get this feeling that dad has just kind of been all over the, all over the island, you know, spreading his seed. And this, you just feel for this poor kid. It's like every time he finds a girl he wants to marry, oh, well, you know, dad shacked up with her mom. And so, you know, you may be related. And of course, then it kind of flips in the last verse, which I, I don't want to spoil for anybody who hasn't listened to it yet. You owe it to yourself to, to listen to the whole track. You know, go find this video that we're talking about on YouTube and listen to it. 
but I mean, it just, the, the end is just so satisfying. What do you think of the song, Polly? Yeah, well, I mean, for one, it's, it's just super catchy. But uh, like you said, yes, that's not something that particularly in 1943 or even in the 50s or even in the 60s that you would see uh, thematically represented in any American pop music. And the, the infidelity and the loose uh, sexual nature of island people in the Caribbean is an old trope that um, uh, you know, American movie producers and record producers would be more than happy to see um, exploited in the song. Well, by all accounts, he was a, he was a showman, you know, um, and that was first and foremost what he was all about. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So next up then would be the classic "I Chase the Devil," aka Iron Shirt. I'm gonna burn your soul into a black lump of coal. Lucifer, son of the morning, I'm gonna chase you out of earth. I'm gonna put on an iron shirt and chase the on an iron shirt and chase Satan out of earth. I'm gonna send him to outer space to find another race. I'm gonna send him to outer space to find another race. Cause Satan is an evilest man. So there was I Chase the Devil, uh, performed by Max Romeo and the Upsetters in 1976. Lori, what's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, for a lot of these songs in preparation for this episode, I went and I tried to find the originals. So I'd have some kind of frame of reference. And so I, I did find the Max Romeo version. I was listening to it. And... I don't know. I, I feel like it loses something. It, it loses something in translation when madness does it. You know, when you listen to Max Romeo, it's this, you know, I rebuke the devil kind of thing, you know, just going to send him off into space. But for some reason, when madness is singing it, 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 it loses that gravity. And it, as I was listening to it, I'm thinking, man, this almost sounds like something we'd sing on the playground you know, when we were kids, you know, all these little sing-songy things about, you know, the devil, like, you no, know, there was a song, well, you know, uh, the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on a tack, you know, and oh, we kids, we thought that was hilarious, and that's kind of what it sounds like when I hear Suggs singing, you know, I'm going to send him into outer space, it, when, when Max Romeo sings it, I feel it, you know, I feel that he's making a very powerful statement of, you know, himself and his beliefs but when i'm hearing madness sing it it just comes off as wishy-washy i don't know what 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 do you think polly well i i can i can kind of appreciate that uh, madness had the good fortune um early on 
in their career when they were covering Prince Buster uh, to still have their voice and their identity come through even though they were doing a cover. Um, and you're right, it did, um, it would seem that that's a little bit harder to pull off when you've been around and you've made a fair amount of money and all of a sudden your idea, identity shifts from working class, you know, scamps running around a neighborhood who can have some um, association and connection with Prince Buster to being established rock stars and still trying to have some connection with um, impoverished uh, you know, Jamaican recording artists and things like that. So yeah, I can, I can kind of see that. However, I absolutely love the song. Um, I, I just think I would probably not get tired of 15 people recording that song. I just, I, I love the original material so much. And of course, loving um, uh, Madness so much. It wouldn't be fundamentally different than seeing a cherished aunt doing karaoke, you know, doesn't matter. Um, it, I'm just going to like it, you know, that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, fantastic song. And I really was, uh, one thing I did like about the Danger Man Sessions in general is they really did seem to um, put some effort into picking the kind of cream of the crop of a lot of the Jamaican ska songs that they could have come up with. So yeah, I think it was a great track to pick. Um, you know, Max Romeo has a pretty long-standing career, but you know that song came off of his his breakout album in 1976, uh, "War in a Babylon." Uh, it was a big hit, huge, huge, huge album, um, and uh, you know he's got that definitive reggae sort of story. He came from and bounced around uh, Kingston, Jamaica in the 1960s and tried and tried and tried to break through um, performing music, but he didn't really until 1968. And the song that he broke through with um, was Wet Dream. And hence, you know, we, I said we were going to talk a little bit about maybe the hypersexuality that um, appears in a lot of Jamaican music. But, um, you know, Wet Dream, that's kind of right up there as far as that goes. Uh, of course, that was later covered by Bad Manners. And no, no wonder, uh, you know, the Jamaican music was just such a rich uh, source of inspiration for so many ska bands. I, I will say this. There, there is one part of this song that I really like, and that is the very beginning when Carl's doing the devil and, and he's like, you know, I'm going to burn your soul. I, I mean, I know I've talked about his voice before when I played that snippet of Norton Folgate in another episode. I could listen to that man speak all day. So I'm just going to take that little snippet. And I'm just going to play it over and over and you can have the rest of the song. Okay, fine. I mean, we're getting now we're, we're, we're talking an awful lot over many podcasts now. You don't think of madness as doing the sexy, sexy thing, but now we've talked about sexy time for madness quite a few times. We might have to do a podcast about that. Ooh, that's a great idea. Oh, I would love to. Yeah, we'll have to do our 70s like uh, overnight DJ voices for Ooh, sex, sexy time for madness. I could totally be down with that. Oh, love it. It's just gone noon.
past half monsoon on the banks of the river Nile. <laughs> okay, well, I think I'm blushing a little bit. I think you are too. I am. All right, let's move on to track five, shall we? Please. This is a cover of the Lord Tanamo track, Taller Than You Are. So Taller Than You Are, as I mentioned, uh, originally performed by Lord Tanamo in 1964. I don't know a lot about the background about this song. I mean, I know what I like. Uh, well, of course, I'm going to say it's another fantastic cover. But, you know, Lord Tanamo is kind of like the godfather of um, Ska, you know, a founding member of the Scottalites. So, you know, he's, he's there. He's uh, an associate of Clement Dodd, you know, Duke Reed, uh, Bunny Lee. I want to say there's a small circle of guys like really, you know, controlling all the strings of this, the, the ska genre, but it's a pretty small community. And um, yeah, and he, he's a big player in it. You know, the uh, the song's fantastic. It's been covered by a million, million people. Probably the most notable version outside of Madness uh, would have been by the Duelers. But uh, like we've talked about in previous episodes, probably as a result of, you know, the sound system uh, being kind of the prime mover in Jamaican music, you know, it's come from DJs playing, songs um coming up with own their own versions of their songs covers is probably a great more uh predominant in jamaican music and ska music than probably any other genre people like a song they're just going to do it they're going to do their own version so uh yeah so he's been covered a ton he also covered shame and scandal so there you go all right I confess, I bought this album, I listened to it once, and then I put it away on a shelf. And I did not listen to it again until literally last night. And one of the things that I noticed, not just this song, but a number of the songs, and I guess I never noticed it the first time because now I have some good speakers to listen to. Betters' bass is really, really strong across this entire album. I mean, I, 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 in places, I feel like he's almost carrying it. It just really brings his A game. Other than that, though, with this particular song, it's inoffensive. You know, I mean, I, that's, that's how I would describe it. It's inoffensive. It's, it's cute. It's not very memorable to me, though. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, no surprise, I'm just going to say I love it. But okay. um, I can I can kind of get that uh, this weird paradoxical thing with a lot of ska music, um, like we talked about the hyper sexual sexualization of a lot of it, 
Um, a lot of it is sort of uh, like morality tales too. So there's this strange, you know, two-sided thing to it where, yeah, they'll write about sex potentially, they'll write about um, their living situation. And another thing might be that they talk about morality tales. And I think that's kind of where taller than you are comes from. But uh, no, I like it. And back to your comment about betters, um, I think that um, the original production on the, a lot of the early Madness albums really buried betters as bass playing. Um, it really, really comes out well on uh, live recordings. Um, you can hear it much, much clearer and it adds a whole new dynamic when you do that. Uh, yeah. Particularly when we were viewing um, for Madstock, uh, that was something that really stuck out to me. And I noticed uh, that definitely, definitely on the live recordings, even more so on the DVD, I think. Okay, so next up um, and familiar to everybody worldwide, I'm sure, is their cover of the Supreme song, You Keep Me Hanging On. So go ahead, give me your thoughts on that. Oh, come on. No, I, I, I do not like this remake at all. Uh, you know, the original, uh, it, it's a woman that has been psychologically abused and it, the, the significant other is playing mind games with her and she's just kind of, you know, screaming, set me free. And that comes through in some of the covers too. I mean, Kim Wilde did a cover of this song in the eighties that was much darker than the Supremes original. And I think you really kind of get that darkness, you know, of uh, underlying the lyrics. But, you know, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned a, a cherished aunt doing karaoke and that's what this sounds like to me. It, it loses all of that depth and all of that meaning and, I don't think that that can be helped. I mean, I think that, you know, that the underlying meaning, it, it just it isn't suited for subs. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do not like this one at all. Sorry. Okay, well, you'll, you'll feel better when we get to the Brenda Lynn song then. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll disagree with you there. I um, don't think Holland, uh, Dozier and Holland really had it. Um, in them to expressly write a song so dark, but I can get it now if you were pulling the lyrics out and seeing them on a written sheet, it would sound like somber poetry. I kind of get that. But um, I just don't, I, I just don't know that I'd ever be able to say um, 
really anything bad about any thing written by that classic Motown writing team. Uh, so I was bound to love it, I think, no matter what. And Supreme is a big, big part of um, uh, my childhood, as was practically everything Motown. Um, but you're right. Uh, it can, it, you can do a lot with a song like that and um, sort of adjust it and tweak it. And uh, like you said, with the, uh, the Kim Wilde song, uh, Vanilla Fudge, same thing. Had a very, very uh, different take on this song. And I would argue the Vanilla Fudge cover is probably, probably my favorite of uh, any of the covers on this song. Um, Tim Buckley did the same thing. Uh, really? He, yeah, yeah. Tim he does Buckley. Really? Uh, okay. And you know, I'm yeah. going to have to check that one out. Yeah, I, check, I, check that out in the Wilson Pickett cover too is really, really good. How interesting. Okay. So, so maybe then that this will change my mind about whether or not, you know, there's a gender dynamic here, but I got to tell you when Suggs said, changes that lyric to, why don't you just be a woman about it? I just cringe. I cringe when I hear him sing that, you know, I don't know. It's just, it rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. Um, it's, I suppose it's all about intentions and I, I bet sometimes and we do this, guys do this, everybody does, but um, when you're outside of something like that and then you think you're gonna do something kind of relevant and um, important by changing a lyric like that, I think their heart was in the right place. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. So track seven is Danger Man, AKA Highwire. Let's listen. <laughs> Danger Man. This is keeping with a kind of an older tradition that we saw with um, Madness doing covers, revamps of TV series themes. So like we, we saw, for example, Tarzan's Nuts on, on their first album, One Step Beyond. And this was from the TV series Danger Man, uh, 1961. The original song was performed by Edwin Astley and his orchestra. Polly, what do you think of this one? Yeah, whatever. I can, I can take it or leave it. Um, I don't think it's nearly as successful as um, some of their other covers of TV themes or movie themes, but, you know, whatever. Uh, they... they uh, uh, it might have been motivated by maybe the idea of uh, the Danger Man was the idea for the concept of the album and then they felt they had to put this on there. I don't know. But, um, you know, not to take anything away from Ben when Astley, he was, um, you know, a very prominent composer. 
um, in his own right, aside from doing television themes, but he did the theme uh, to The Saint, which is uh, a fantastic show, if you ever get to see it, Roger Moore pre-007 days. Um, so yeah, whatever, it is what it is. Well, and, and you know, there is this tradition of madness, not just doing, you know, like TV themes, but also, you know, like classical or orchestra music, like we saw, you know, Swan Lake, was, was one of their bigger ones. And then we have another one that we're gonna listen to later in this podcast. That's that another are. another remake of a, a classical music piece or, you know, or orchestral piece. All right. So then number eight would be, again, another, another classic song. And it's uh, originally by Desmond Decker and the Aces and it is Israelites. What are your thoughts on Israelites? Boy, I wish you wouldn't start with me on these because I feel like I'm going to sour everything, you know, that all, all the cool research that you're going to do that's going to come after. Um, the first thing I think of when I listen to this, the very beginning, is I think of the way that people drone on in church, you know, they're singing a church hymn. Oh, the Israelites. I mean, it, it, it just sounds awful in the beginning. But, um, uh, number one, I think it's overproduced to hell. Um, you know, the original, I think, was was uh, maybe uh, sc scaled back a little bit more, you know, pared back. And I think, but but more importantly, I, I again, I feel like so much of the meaning is lost in translation here. You know, I mean, we get the idea, you know, the, the Desmond Decker version, it was really drawing very heavily on uh, Rasta, culture and religion, you know, the, the parallels between, you know, the, the Israelites in the Bible and the Rastafarians, how they're kind of uh, um, God's chosen people, but they're also kind of maligned because of that. And that there's also some suffering, you know, I mean, the idea of, you know, uh, not having bread, right, needing to, you know, the hunger, poverty. And then there's, uh, you know, elsewhere in the song, it's about, uh, you know, your clothes being rags, tattered, you know, um, don't want to have to be like Bonnie and Clyde, you know, the idea that, you know, I don't want to have to turn to a life of crime. And when it's coming from someone like Desmond Decker, who's part of this culture, again, it's very powerful. It's making a very powerful statement, not to mention that I absolutely love the Jamaican Patois. You know, it's just such a beautiful, melodic, melodic, melodious, melodious, uh, a way of speaking and singing and all of that just completely gets whitewashed 
in, in, in this cover. And that raises a, a question, which I'm gonna pose when, when you're done telling me what you think about this, Polly. Oh, okay. Um, I do like the cover, but um, it was almost uh, kind of too ambitious, um, uh, especially using, playing it in the same time and same pace as Desmond Decker. Uh, because what uh, really saves the Desmond Decker uh, version doesn't save it because it was the original and it was what it was and it was perfect to begin with. But um, what Desmond Decker does with his falsetto and vibrato uh, really makes that song and Suggs cannot do that. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's really solid. Um, if you look at it as an homage, I think it is really worthwhile. But um, it's a lot like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying, it's, it's uh, uh, like every cover, cover of um, Hey Jude. Mm. <laughs> You're just like, it's kind of like, almost like there's songs you cover and then there's songs you don't cover. And this might be one you don't cover. <laughs> well, and so that kind of leads me to my question. And this is really more of like an academic or a hypothetical. But if this was recorded in 2021, do you think our boys would have been accused of cultural appropriation? Uh, I don't know, maybe. Uh, I, uh, I can appreciate the need now for addressing things like that. But when it comes to the realm of sort of like uh, what is ultimately pop music, I really feel like having uh, red lines drawn kind of what people should cover and what people shouldn't do. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to tell. But I mean, there has been there has been more modern versions of it. Um, Desmond Decker himself did another version of it in 1980. Um, and you know, kind of change things up a little bit. But yeah, I can, I can kind of, I can kind of get where you're going with that. I mean, I, I just, I, I realize that it's very subjective, right? That you know, there isn't this, you know, line in the sand or you know, what have you. But um, I don't know. I, I just kind of wonder if, and, and maybe just in a broader perspective if a lot of these, you know, two-tone bands, had they been 40 years later, would people have responded in the same way? And I, I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it, obviously there's no way you can say one way or the other. It's just, it, it, it's food for thought, you know? I'm not, I'm not passing any sort of judgment. Um, I'm just, uh, you know, I like thinking about the broader implications of these things, so. All right, so the next track, track nine, um, John Jones. Take my 
Okay, so I confess I know absolutely nothing about this song other than that it was performed originally by Rudy Mills in 1968. But Polly, I think you're going to educate me. Uh, you might be surprised. Um, Rudy Mills is not written about a great deal at all. Um, and John Jones doesn't really appear uh, in, in print, in print as in, you know, on record. Yeah, it's, it's not a song that has been released very widely. And uh, Rudy Mills not written about a lot. Um, he was on a sub-label of Trojan Records, which makes him a little bit easier to find stuff out about. But um, the only, I've only got two versions of John Jones at all. Of course, one being on the Danger Man Sessions and one being on a Trojan compilation called Tighten Up. And that's it. That's pretty much the extent of what I know about either Rudy Mill or John Jones. But uh, definitely one of my favorite tracks on the album. Do we know anything? I mean, is it, we probably don't even know if this is based on like a historical person or something. I mean, John Jones, you son of a gun. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but I had those thoughts um, as well, because it sounded like, oh, wow, this could be very similar to um, like John Henry or something like that. So mm -hmm. I, I kind of had the same, same thoughts at some point. Yeah. But I can see why the song was very popular in British skinhead culture, though. The idea, mm -hmm. you know, I don't like a man who tries to belittle me and I don't like a man who tries to kill my hand. You know, I can see where that lyric would have been very powerful and resonated with, with the British skinheads. Yeah, working class anthem, absolutely. All right, and so those of you reading along um, with the track listing at home, you're gonna know I'm gonna have a lot to talk about this one. This is Lola. Speaking of songs that might, um, you know, have different contexts in a, in a different era, uh, this is Lola by the Kinks. What are your thoughts on it? I love the original. <laughs> um, I don't care for Madness's cover. Uh, it, it, nobody asked for this. You know, um, I, I, I hate UB40 with a passion. I cannot stand UB40. And this is the closest I think we have to madness trying to be UB40. It, it, doing reggae covers of pop songs that nobody asked for. So um, I think it should have just been left, left alone. Yeah, um, I, I, can, I can appreciate that take on it. Um, I think this was probably as motivated by them wanting to 
have a nod to Ray Davies on this. And there's not a lot of the other notable Kinks songs that would have lent itself to doing a ska version of. So I'm assuming, assuming that was uh, where they were trying to head with that. I love the song. Always am gonna love the Kinks version. Um, I would argue the best recorded version of Lola is on the one for the Road Live album by the Kinks. Um, but, uh, you know, we're gonna talk about context. I think we should talk about 1970 and what a challenging song that was to put out um, at that time and how it's mostly avoided um, too much scrutiny uh, even back then, although there was a lot of radio stations had a hard time playing it for various reasons. Of course, in the UK, because of some weird law where they can't have product placement in the song, and the, the original oh. words were Coca-Cola instead of Cherry Cola. And um, there were some places in the American South where they wouldn't play it because of uh, the re religious right just not uh, thinking that should be allowable on radio um, in other parts of the country too, to, to be fair. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, even for 2005, that's, you know, it's not necessarily a song that plays to a lot of people's sensibilities, but I, I'm always going to love it. I just find it super endearing. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I'm all about songs that have this kind of gender bending component right in the very end you know i'm a man and so is lola and i can see where that would have been controversial in 1970 when the kinks put out the song but and now again i wasn't born in, yet so i can't say what the discussion was in 1970 but i do remember you know uh, the mid to late 70s there was a lot of controversy about um lou reed take a walk on the wild side oh, yeah. which is also yeah. dealing with kind of a similar subject matter. Um, and I don't remember there being as much controversy about Lola, but again, Lola was a little bit before my time, so maybe I missed it. Um, but I, I love songs that play with preconceived notions of gender and, and human sexuality. And uh, I really appreciate, you know, the kinks for, for going out going all out on this you know and and putting out something that was so you know at the time um controversial yeah well and speaking of cultural appropriation um i've really not and i thought i would by now um here if there was going to be any um uh resentment on part of the lgbtq plus movement um, feeling that um, it didn't potentially um, shine a good light on uh, trans people. Hmm. And, yeah, because um, there was that controversy around Lou Reed. Yeah, yeah. And, and Lou Reed was, was involved with a trans person for a while, like in a relationship. So, you know, there, there's, yeah, there's a lot of controversy around him. I wonder, I wonder why, you know, maybe it was just kind of his lifestyle where he was drawing more attention to himself than, than, like Ray Davies? Yeah. Uh, I would gather no. <laughs> okay. Thank you for indulging me in that little tangent. You never know what you're going to get when you listen to Stateside Madness. 
All right, we're gonna move on to track 11. You'll lose a good thing. So again, I don't know much about this song. You'll lose a good thing. I know it was originally performed by Barbara Lynn in 1962. That's all I got. But really? probably, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, this is a part of a cultural blind spot for me, right? I don't have the the same background that you do. So teach me, oh wise one. Oh really? Okay. That, wow. Thank you. So Barbara Lynn is kind of like the original badass. Uh, she releases this in 1962. Um, she's a left-handed, proficient guitar player. Not left-handed has a great deal to do with it, but um, but it's a thing. Um, and she, you know, she writes all her own songs, uh, performs all her own songs. A great blues-style um, guitar player. And um, here you go. There's here's your rebuttal to the Supreme song. Here's a take charge woman, you know, putting out this song in 1962. And um, yeah, she's fantastic. Uh, I wasn't familiar with this version originally. I was familiar with the Aretha Franklin version and um, the Freddie Fender version. Uh, that was my life in the back of the family sedan in uh, the early 70s uh, was my mom was um, an oldies fan, which is kind of curious because um, I do remember quite distinctly listening to a radio station whose tag was the oldies station, but we're talking about something that would have been 11 to like 14 years old at that point. How the hell old is it? Um, and then my dad was a country music fan, so we'd listen on another station and I could hear probably in the span of a day or one trip um, I could hear both the Aretha Franklin version and the Freddie Fender version, same song. Uh, and it's fantastic. I absolutely, absolutely adore this song. And, um, you know, Barbara Lynn, she, she kind of, she kind of peaked with this song, but um, she's got quite the resume. I mean, she's worked with a million people and apologies to our listeners, because I really am going to read this right off of Wikipedia. But uh, she worked with Gladys Knight, Stevie Wonder, Smokey, Dionne Warwick, Jackie Wilson, Sam Cooke, Otis Redding, James Brown, Al Green, Marvin Gaye, Ike and Tina, The Temptations, and B.B. King. I mean, holy shit. Um, and I think it's a fantastic rendition. Yeah. All right, and so uh, 12th song on the album would be Rain. Let's take a listen. Rain. 
right, Lori. So what are your thoughts there? You know, I think this is one of the better tracks on the album. Um, I know the original was by Jose Feliciano, who is a Puerto Rican uh, artist, best known for Feliz Navidad, right? That's that's where he he's is. best known for. That being said, it's still, it's not, not, it's not super. I mean, it, it, it's one of the better tracks on the album, I think, but it, it's still, I'm not in love with it. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I'm not really in love with it either. Um, if I'm going to be consistent at all in all the albums we've talked about, um, I like the upbeat stuff better by default. Okay. And, um, you know, if I was a Jose Feliciano um, fan, really, uh, I mean, I'm sure he's a lovely man, but you're right. I only know him for Feliz Navidad. That's the extent of it. Not exactly a super fan. Um, there's not a lot for me to really latch on to in that song. So, yeah. Okay. All right, and that brings us to the final track, So Much Trouble in the World. Well, bless my eyes this morning. Right, so I recognize this one. This was originally Bob Marley and the Whalers. That it was, yeah. It's it's uh it's one of those uh, songs that where I said they did a really good job picking the very cream of the crop, and this is one of Marley's better songs. I agree. It's one of Marley's uh, good songs. I I don't know. I I I'm not I'm not in love with with the cover. It's okay. I mean, I appreciate, you know, that they're paying homage to their, um, their roots, you know, their influences, and that, you know, they were so heavily influenced by, you know, Jamaican reggae and Jamaican ska. But um, and, and it's an okay song. It's not as good as, um, like, the harder they come, you know, we talked about mm. that at the Madstock uh, episode, which was, you know, another reggae cover, which is Jimmy Cliff. Um, that one, I, I, that cover, I really felt a lot more than this one. I don't know. How, how do you feel about it? Well, you know, um, this was a big, important song at a really important time for Bob Marley and the Whalers, um, off of what at that time had been, um, uh, their most political album and a really, really, really important album um, for uh, Jamaican music. And so, I don't know, I, I mean, 
it's a little hard to pull it out of that context. Yeah. And just, you know, it, I, I don't know. I, I think they did, like I said, they did really well picking the best, best songs um, that they could have, but I totally would have left this one alone, I think. You know, it, it's funny because all this, all I'm hearing in my head is that line from Jurassic Park where Jeff Goldblum says, um, they were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think about whether they should. Yeah. And, and I kind of feel that way about most of this album, uh, unfortunately. And I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm being down on our boys because you guys know how much I love our band and I love Madness. And I, it was good for me, uh, you know, academically to be able to hear where some of their roots came from. But most of these just don't hold a candle to, to, to the originals that they were paying tribute to, you know what I mean? I think they were much better served um, by the songs that were less known. Um, so this, this yeah. one would have been hard to pull off, but yeah, I, I will disagree with you. This album to me had just all the bells and whistles that I was really going to go nuts for. Okay. And I absolutely, I, I absolutely think it's fantastic. Um, doing cover albums are really, really hard. Um, yeah, in spite yeah. of where people think it would be easy because you've already got the source material there, uh, proven, tried and true stuff. Um, then you just knock out a quick cover of it and uh, yeah. the cash rolls in. But uh, it's, uh, it's far too risky. And for me, I think the risk, you know, uh, really paid off. So, well, you know, what, one thing I really do appreciate is that Madness really did take these songs and rearrange them and make them their own. They're not just copying something that somebody else has done. And I, I really, artistically, I really appreciate the fact that they did that, that they're, you know, they're putting their own spin on things. So they have my respect for that. Um, so... This is now where I'm going to ask you, this is your favorite, your favorite question, but I haven't asked you in so long. So Polly, what is your favorite track on the album and what is your least favorite track? Okay, so uh, right off the bat, I think, um, I, not knowing what you selected, I think the rules probably should be that uh, this is where it doesn't even count. Um, and uh, I would argue that uh, Danger Man may be kind of the same thing. You know, I probably would have said Danger Man, but um, your favorite or your least favorite? I, I think that would have been my least favorite. Okay. But I'm actually going to say Rain. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, did did nothing for me. All right. And so far as favorites go, it's probably going to be John Jones. Oh. Okay. All right. How about you? Well, least favorite is definitely um, Keep Me Hanging On. Definitely the least favorite. As far as favorite, I kind of went back and forth a little bit on this. I almost said, girl, why don't you? But shame and scandal. Shame and scandal, without a doubt, is my favorite. And quite frankly, those are the only two tracks on the album that I actually listen to with any regularity. So yeah, you and I really are, are very diametrically opposed here uh, in our taste. A lot of times we're stepping on each other with our, our favorite choices, but that didn't happen here, did it? Uh, no, it did not. Yeah. So 
so as I kind of mentioned, this album was released in the first few weeks it was released. It, there was a very good, strong reception. And then it just kind of fizzled. And I also got that kind of vibe too when reading about the, the subsequent tour. I know when they uh, were playing, they incorporated a lot of these songs into their tour, but as the tour dates uh, went further and further out, I, they started playing fewer and fewer songs from this album until it just eventually kind of dropped out of their set list. There never was a, a Danger Men Sessions Volume 2. Uh, well, there's still time. Let's, let's uh, see if we can persuade them. Okay. All right. Well. <laughs> Using our vast influence. Right. All right. So, um, all right. So, uh, as we wrap up this episode, let's talk a little bit about what we're doing in two weeks. Polly, what are we doing in two weeks? So we're doing our second fan engagement episode. Uh, a lot of you Stateside Madness members have uh, volunteered to speak with us and talk about our memories of the band and our favorite things about them. So yeah, there you go. The last one was a great deal of fun. Yeah, um, it, was, we it were, was a lot of fun. It was, yeah. We were just kind of getting our feet underneath us as far as doing the podcast. We're so much better at it now. It ought to be really, really good. So that, that's coming in two weeks. That's Memorial Day weekend. We like to do that for the holiday weekend. And Polly, you selected a, a closing song for us. And this was another one that was originally from the uh, Danger Men sessions, but didn't make that album. Tell us about the closing song. All right. So I picked In the Hall of the Mountain King. Uh, did not make the Danger Men session, but was released on Forever Young. So you'd have to go back a few episodes but um, I disclosed at one point that calling cards is kind of like if I had to pick a song where you dance around in your underwear for me it would be kind of calling cards um, if there was a song that is me sneaking around on my tiptoes it would be in the hall of the mountain king and everybody knows it it's just I don't know it's just a fantastic melody um, great classical selection. Another thing you might not know about me, Lori, is I, I know a bit or two about classical music too. Okay. Um, pretty big opera fan, although um, in the Hall of Mountain King wouldn't count as having been from opera. It's uh, incidental music for a play, uh, the Henrik Ibsen play that came out in 19, excuse me, the Henrik Ibsen play of uh, 1867, Pierre Gent, and written by Edvard Grieg. Um, just a monumental song in classical music. Used to have people, if you can imagine, in the very late um, 1800s Victoria era, people had drastically different forms of entertainment and to think that people stood on their feet, hear this little ditty played mm -hmm. and screamed and jumped up and down. It's I mean, wild. this, yeah, this, this was the twist and shout of Victoria era theater. So uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Can't, well, can't say anything more about it. You know, I'll be honest. So again, this is keeping with that tradition of like madness doing their own arrangements, ska arrangements of classical music. I like this one better than their arrangement of Swan Lake. 
Really? Oh yeah, a lot more. So, so we're gonna close with In the Hall of the Mountain King. Thank you for making this awesome selection, Polly. Um, and uh, that's it. Uh, we'll see everybody in two weeks for our fan engagement episode. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Go get a beer, Stateside Madness. Bye.